You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. In each episode, we'll talk about two themes from our 2018 reading challenge, 10 to Try. Learn more about the challenge and see a list of all the categories at kcls.org slash 10 to Try. On this episode of The Desk Set, we're talking about two 10 to Try categories that have more overlap than you might think, bander-challenged books and young adult books. We'll chat with YA superstar Marissa Meyer about her new series, Renegades, the power of fairy tale retellings, and which Sailor Scout she wants to be. Then we chat about why comics and graphic novels are so often on the top of banned books lists. Plus, we share our top picks for underappreciated YA books to try after you've finished all the bestsellers. Marissa Meyer is the author of eight young adult novels, including Cinder, a science fiction retelling of Cinderella, and the rest of the best-selling Lunar Chronicles series. Her new series features superheroes, supervillains, and a little star-crossed romance. She's also a resident of the Pacific Northwest, and we had a great time chatting with her at the Bellevue Idea X Makerspace when she came for a visit. I'm Marissa Meyer. I'm the author of the Lunar Chronicles and Heartless and my newest series, The Renegades Trilogy. For readers who aren't familiar with it, tell us a little bit more about that series. <laughs> um, about Renegades specifically? Yeah. Renegades is my superhero series. Um, so it is about a girl who has been raised by supervillains, um, and she has a lot of hatred built up for this very powerful and beloved group of superheroes called the Renegades, um, who she believes did not come to help her and her family when they needed them the most. Um, And so she has made it her life goal to try to take the renegades down. Then one day she meets a boy who was actually raised by the renegades and is a renegade himself. They start to develop feelings for each other, not knowing that their secret identities um, are actually becoming arch enemies. So one of the things that I loved in Renegades is you write really great fight scenes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there are several exciting ones, including one set in the library. Mm. Uh, we don't want our listeners to be battling evil in the library. <laughs> but I'm wondering how you research for a fight scene, because there's a lot of, like, hand-to-hand combat and weapons and all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, fight scenes, um, I kind of think of them as almost making up dance choreography. I did like some drama when I was a kid and growing up. And so that's always kind of how I stop and think about them. Um, So for some fight scenes, I'll watch YouTube videos of people fighting um, and just try to get an idea for, you know, okay, if someone swings this fist, then how might someone block that um, and just get an idea of the actual movement. Sometimes I'll literally stand up in my office and, you know, block it out and try to figure out, okay, if I get hit here, then what am I going to do to deflect that uh, and just kind of figure out the logistics of it. Um, And then also when I'm writing a fight scene, I'm constantly trying to think of the setting that the scene is in um, and what can be used within that setting. Um, So for example, in the the scene that takes place in the library, um, you know, there's lots of 
obviously teetering bookshelves full of heavy books um, and just trying to incorporate that into the scene as much as possible. We're probably best known for the Lunar Chronicles, which is a series of sci-fi fairy tale retellings that starts with Cinder, where Cinderella is a cyborg mechanic who fixes the prince's android. Um, what do you think is appealing about fairy tale retellings, both for readers and also for writers? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things um, that we find ourselves constantly drawn to these very archetypal stories. Um, and I think that a lot of it is because the themes within these stories are so universal and so timeless. Um, and Cinderella is one of the most obvious examples um, in that it is at its heart a rags to riches story. And I don't think there's anyone in the world, no matter you know where you come from or um, where you start out in life, uh, what your, your culture is or your religion or anything, we all love this idea of um, being able to, you know, grow in society beyond where we came from. Um, and that's, uh, something that I think so many people respond to on a really deep level. Um, and of course, a lot of fairy tales too have to do with, uh, finding love, finding acceptance and belonging. Um, and those are just themes that really appeal to us on a human level. Uh, so I think that that's part of the reason why they continue to persist. Um, and then for writers, it's great that you can take these stories that have been around for so long that people do have such strong uh, familiarity with and such childhood ties to, but they leave so much room still for imagination. You know, they're such simple stories that you can really take that heart of the story and expand it and um, enhance it in so many different directions. Um, and for a writer, that's a lot of fun to play with. So as the series goes on, they get the stories become sort of more and more complicated because you're not leaving the original characters behind. They continue. Was that a challenge to balance all of the new stuff you were adding and still sort of try to do the fairy tale retelling part of it? It was a huge challenge. And that was the plan from the beginning that, you know, we would start with Cinderella and then book two would continue Cinderella's story, but then also bring in Little Red Riding Hood. And then book three, now you have Cinderella and the prince and Little Red and the wolf, but now you're adding in Rapunzel and her prince, and it would just get bigger and bigger. Um, and my idea was that by the end of the story, you would have this really awesome um, crew on this spaceship who now had to work together to try to take down the evil queen. And I loved that idea from the beginning, um, and it's very much what made me fall in love with this series. Uh, but I don't think that the writer I was when I started writing Cinder would have been capable of then writing the book that was Winter, um, because it was so much more complicated and had so many characters and so many subplots um, by the time you get to the end of the series. Uh, so it really was very much a growing um, exercise for me as a writer, and I developed so much in my my craft and my skills, um, so that by the time I was, you know, tackling winter, I, I knew so much more about what it took to put this story together and figure it out. Um, and I you know, obviously hope that readers agree, um, and and it seemed to all work out really well. So, like you sort of indicated there, Lunar Chronicles is sort of a huge universe at this point. You've got the four main novels and an additional novel, a collection of short stories and some graphic novels. Was it hard to leave all of that behind and start over? Um, I would say it was bittersweet. Uh, I really loved writing the graphic novels, um, which wasn't something I had originally planned to do. But 
by the end, as I was finishing the series and started to feel really sad about leaving this world and these characters behind, uh, then I had the idea for these graphic novel spinoffs. So it was so much fun for me to write them um, and to be able to stay with these characters a little bit longer. Um, at the same time, I had been writing the Lunar Chronicles um, for, gosh, almost eight years, I think, um, when the series wrapped up. And I had a lot of ideas uh, for new novels that were in my head and I was really excited about. Um, so as much as it was difficult to leave those characters behind, I was also really excited to pursue some new things. So after Lunar Chronicles, you wrote Heartless, which is about the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland sort of before Alice's arrival. And then Ferris is a backstory of the Lunar Chronicles villain. And like you said, um, in Renegades, the main character has been raised by sort of the supervillains. Uh, what makes you interested in thinking about villains and unlikable women? I don't really know why, but I, it is something I am so drawn to. And uh, obviously a lot of these themes that I enjoy playing with and have played with in a number of different novels now. Um, I think a part of it for me is because... Um, when you think of a villain, the most interesting villains are the ones who are not 100% villainous. Um, you know, there's a, a famous quote, and I couldn't tell you who said it, but it's famous, um, that the villain is the hero of their own story. They believe they're the hero of the story. Um, and I think that's so true, that if you can figure out what it is about a villain um, that is making them do the things that they're doing and why they are making these choices uh, to, the, the, to the reader and the, to the other characters... Um, seem like horrible choices, and you're such a bad person, and why would you do this? But if you can dig deeper into their motivations um, and let the reader see why, um, and helpfully the, allow the reader to kind of understand them, maybe even sympathize with them or connect with them on a different level, I think it makes them so much more interesting. Um, so I really like playing with that. I love looking at kind of the gray areas um, when it comes to morals and ethics and knowing that, you know, no one in the world is all good or all bad. We all have, you know, these gray areas in our personality. Um, and there are situations where, you know, you might like to think that you would do the heroic thing, but a lot of studies show that oftentimes people choose not to do the heroic thing. And I think that's all really interesting to take a look at. Did you start writing about superheroes with that question in mind? Or was it just sort of like, oh, that's an interest that I have and it works really well with superheroes? Or how did you go from fairy tales to superheroes? Um, yeah, no, definitely. I really wanted renegades to examine those gray areas between good and evil. Um, I really, from the beginning, wanted to take a supervillain character and a superhero character um, and in some ways pit them against each other and force them to, you know, question their own belief systems um, and see if they would change over the course of the story, um, but at the same time show that they're starting to fall in love. And what does that do to their behaviors and their beliefs? Um, so that was very much kind of the, the structure of the story from the very beginning. Um, and part of it is that I have always loved superheroes, um, kind of similar to fairy tales and how the stories are so iconic and there's such universal themes. Um, we see that same sort of thing in superhero stories. And, um, you know, everyone at some point or another has had these vicarious fantasies of having superpowers and being able to go out into the world and make a difference and protect the weak and the innocent um, and, 
you know, we all have those fantasies. Uh, and so that's another thing that I've always enjoyed, you know, reading superhero stories and watching the movies ever since I was a kid. Um, and so it's been a lot of fun for me now to take some of those themes and apply them to my own creation. And if you were to have your own superpower, is there one that you'd really like? <laughs> um, there's like a couple. Nova, who's the main character in Renegades, um, this is so not very heroic, but she has two powers. One is that she can put people to sleep through her touch. Um, the other power is that she herself never has to sleep. Um, I love that. I'm like such a crazy overachiever, and I love the idea that if I never had to sleep, oh, just think of all of the things that I could get done um, and all the books that I could read and all the books that I could write. Uh, so that's a very vicarious fantasy for me, even though I probably wouldn't be saving the world with it too much. <laughs> so readers of all ages definitely enjoy your books. I've read most of them and I am an adult, uh, but technically they're categorized as young adult. Did you start out wanting to write for teenagers? Um, yes and no. I started... When I started writing or trying to write my first novel, that was kind of before young adult was really a thing. Um, like Harry Potter was just becoming big. Um, Twilight and the Hunger Games hadn't really hit the scene yet. So young adult as a genre really didn't start, you know, coming into its prime as we see today um, until I was already you know, knowing that I wanted to be a writer and working on some of my first novels. Um, so I didn't know that this is the genre I want to write in. But when I, I started attempting to write my first novel when I was 16, um, and it was about a 16-year-old princess, of course. Um, and even from then on, you know, that novel I never finished, and the next one I never finished, and the next one I never finished. Um, and I got older and went to college and got into my 20s, um, but my characters always stayed teenagers. Um, and... At the time, I didn't really know why. I can look back on it now and think just how much I loved, um, you know, how fresh all of the emotions are then, how everything when you're a teenager uh, carries so much importance and so much weight. Um, and every, you know, when it comes to the romance, every touch is important. Every kiss is a, a moment. Um, and I love that. And I've always loved that. And so it's definitely, I think, now why I continue to want to write um, in that age group. Uh, and then, of course, Hunger Games came out, Twilight came out, and suddenly Young Adult was a thing, and I realized, hey, this is what I'm writing. This is what my stories have always been. So, Do you think you'll ever try adults or middle grade? Are you happy writing Young I'm Adult? I'm very happy in Young Adult. Uh, never say never. Yeah. Um, I don't currently have any ideas uh, for middle grade or adult fiction, but I do have... Um, Ideas for other things. I have ideas for some nonfiction books I'd like to pursue at some point, um, more graphic novels. I'd, I have young children, so I'd love to write a picture book at some point. Uh, so there are other things that I want to explore, but as far as novels go, I'm really happy in YA. Yeah. And what were some of the novels when you were a teenager that really made you excited about reading and writing? When I was a teenager, I was super into uh, high fantasy. Um, so, you know, lots of, obviously, Tolkien, um, Eddings, uh, Tamara Pierce. I mean, kind of everything in that genre. If there was a dragon on the cover, that's what I was reading. I love those David Eddings books. When yeah. I was a teenager, they're so great. They were so good. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that 
obviously when they came out, they were shelved in high fantasy. I suspect that if they came out today, they would be YA. Yeah, I totally agree. Because I can't remember the main character's name now, but he's like a teenager. And it's Mm -hmm. all about sort of his quest and his first romance and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And the whole growing up story. Yeah. Yeah, all of that. Uh, speaking of YA, what are you reading now? Do you read other YA authors? I do. Um, I mean, I read, I read a lot of young adult, um, and I also read a fair amount of nonfiction. Um, but within YA right now, I am reading, uh, P.S. I Like You by Cassie West. Um, and it's adorable and has a kind of the love hate romance trope, which is like my favorite romance trope. Um, so I'm really into it, but I do I read a lot of YA. It's still my, my go-to, my love. So one of the other things we're talking about in this episode are band books. And frequently there's a lot of crossover between YA and band books. Mm. Why do you think it is that people are so worried about what teenagers are reading? I honestly don't know. Um, and it will be interesting as my kids get older and become teenagers to see if I become more concerned <laughs> about this sort of thing. Um, my girls are three. I have three-year-old twins. Um, so we're like nowhere near that. Um, but to me, I mean, even looking at the teenagers in my life, I feel like they are so smart and so aware of what's going on in the world. And I think a lot of adults maybe don't give them enough credit um, for not only already knowing, you know, what some of the the issues are um, that I think people, they, that books become banned for dealing with these topics. And it's like, kids, they're really, they know what's going on. They're, you know, they figured it out. But they also, I think kids are also smart enough to know, like, where their own limits are. Um, and if they're reading something that they're not comfortable with, um, or that they might realize like, this is beyond what I'm ready to really be reading about. I think kids are smart enough to, um, I shouldn't be saying kids, young adults are smart enough to set it aside and maybe come back to that later. Um, and I think a lot of adults maybe don't realize that, that they have that capacity. And so they, you know, try to curate more, um, what they think the, the young people should be reading. And I personally think that it's um, always a good thing to read, maybe to read beyond your boundaries sometimes. Um, I don't know. I, I can't imagine me as a mother ever asking my children not to read something. Like, that's very a baffling thought to me. So you mentioned some of the YA books you're reading and ones you grew up with. Are there some graphic novels that are inspiring you to work more in that medium? Um, yes, I... Uh, okay, hold on. Let me think of names here. Um, Kazuki Biwishi is, and I'm sorry if I butchered that name. Um, he's phenomenal. I love the work that he does. Um, and, uh, what's her name? Her name is, uh, Faith, Faith Erin Hicks, Mm -hmm. um, is another who I absolutely adore, um, and love the way that she's able to pull stories together, um, and different perspectives, um, Jean Luen Yang, of course, is phenomenal. And yeah, I love graphic novels. I've loved them since I was a teenager. So there's lots. I think it's sort of like YA too, where there's like a whole explosion in the last decade or so. Yeah. Um, if you're a person who was not going to your comic book shop to buy like single issues, you can get so much more mm-hmm. now, which is really exciting and more different kinds of stories available in graphic formats, yeah. which no, is definitely really wonderful. 
Um, and I also know, like, when I was a kid um, and, the, the, you know, the single-issue comics, um, even though I loved, say, reading my older brother's X-Men comics, um, at the same time, I always felt like comics were, you know, a, quote, boy thing. I didn't really feel like comics were being written uh, for me. Um, and then when I was a teenager, I discovered Japanese manga, um, and suddenly it's all for me, <laughs> and I just completely fell in love with manga, um, and that, for me, felt like opening up a brand new world of, of storytelling, and um, is really what I credit for starting my love of graphic novels, you know, until today. Do you think the East Asian uh, like setting and stuff of manga influenced the world building in Lunar Chronicles? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, part of it was inspired um, just by my love of manga um, and Sailor Moon, which was, had my heart when I was a teenager. Um, but the specific choice for Cinder being set in this futuristic China um, is because uh, the to what many believe to be the first recorded version of the Cinderella story um, is was written in 9th century China. Um, and it's a wonderful fairy tale called Ye Shen. And I definitely encourage people to go read it because it's fascinating to see the story of Cinderella um, set in this very different world and culture. But at the same time, it's obviously Cinderella mm -hmm. like she loses the slipper and you know at the end marries the emperor she has the wicked stepmother um instead of having a fairy godmother or magical birds she has like magical talking fish bones that give her the dress um and it's totally the story of Cinderella but at the same time so different from what mm -hmm. we expect the story of Cinderella to be so that was the the inspiration for the specifically Chinese setting did you do a lot of fairy tale research when you were oh, yeah. putting the books together oh yeah <laughs> Any other sort of favorite nuggets that you dug up? Um, I think my favorite one to research was Little Red Riding Hood mm -hmm. because it really went through a lot of different variations um, over the centuries until obviously the one by the Grimm brothers that we know. And most people know the story of Red Riding Hood. By the end, you know, she and her grandmother are both gobbled up, and then the kindly old woodsman comes and rescues them. Um, but in much older stories, Little Red Robin, Robin, Little Red Riding Hood, um, was actually able to trick the wolf um, and get away herself. Uh, and I, I love that to see the girl outsmarting the villain and rescuing herself, which we don't really always see so much in the Grimm's versions. Mm -hmm. Did you have a Sailor Scout that you really identified with? Uh, Sailor Jupiter was always my favorite. Um, although, you phrase it as one I identified with. For me, Sailor Moon was the one that was most like me. Um, just because we were like both super bubbly and chipper and always like the optimistic one in our friends group. And let's all be happy. Um, and so my friends actually called me Usagi when I was a teenager, which was her name in Japan. Um, was my nickname for a long time. Uh, but Sailor Jupiter is the one that I admired the most, um, and I loved her. I actually based Cinder's character a lot off of Sailor Jupiter, um, because I love that on the outside, Sailor Jupiter, when you meet her, she's a tomboy, and she's, like, really tough and always getting into fights, and all the other students are scared of her. Uh, but then once she 
gets to know the other characters, you learn that she's like this total softy and she really just likes to bake and cook and she just really wants someone to love her and like she's totally, you know, soft and squishy on the inside and I just really loved that dichotomy in her character. And going back to something you said earlier, um, do you think there's a villain that stands out as someone who's like really misunderstood? (laughs) (laughs) Um... I'm sure there are. I mean, that's that's part of the reason why I wanted to do the Queen of Hearts um, is because you learn so little about her in Alice in Wonderland. And for a long time, I thought there's got to be more to this woman. Like, why is she so angry? What happened? Um, And I think that's obviously I feel the same way um, with the Wicked Witch of the West, and I love what Gregory Maguire was able to do with her character, and so it's really fun for writers to take these characters that everyone thinks they know, um, but then, you know, twist, give them a twist somehow, and maybe show that it's actually much different than we all assume, um, which doesn't answer your question, but I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot. Actually, you know what? Villain, I think, would be fascinating to do, um, and has been done, um, is Rumpelstiltskin. I love the story of Rumpelstiltskin, but ever since I was a child, I always felt like Rumpelstiltskin is not the bad guy in this story. (laughs) Clearly the king is like the one with the issues here. And I'm so curious about that character and why he does what he does to help the farmer's daughter. um, And why does he want the child at the end of the story? And I just think there's so many unanswered questions there. So I think he'd be a fun one to do with something with something. I think Naomi Novik's new book, Spinning Silver, has some of that in it. I haven't read it yet, and I don't think it's as much about him, but I do think it plays with the Rumpelstiltskin story a little bit. I have not read it yet either. And there's also another... I don't know if it's YA or middle grade, um, but there is a Rumpelstiltskin retelling that I should pick up because I'd be really curious to know what she ended up doing with it. And yeah. I can't think of what the title is. Like, Actually, it might be called Rump, maybe. <laughs> I'm still waiting on someone to share Ursula's side of the story. That's what I was going to say, too. I feel like Ursula's. Well, <laughs> since you mentioned that, um, I actually have a short story in a collection called um, because you love to hate me, and the collection, the anthology, is thirteen stories about well-known villains. Um, and I got to do the Sea Witches story. I can't wait to read. That. Yeah, so check that out. It's it's available now. Um, <laughs> I think it just came out in paperback. So, yeah, great. I'm sure we have it. We'll put it in the show notes <laughs> for our listeners. It was fun. I, I also had long been interested in the Sea Witch, um, and she's another character similar to the Queen of Hearts, that I thought there is more going on here. So I really loved getting to tell her story. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I think a lot of readers, teen and adult, are familiar with Marissa and some of the other big YA names like John Green or Veronica Roth. But where do you go when you've read the bestsellers? I have a couple of suggestions. The first is Jasper Jones by Craig Sylvie. Jasper Jones isn't anything to Charlie, the main character of this book. 
He's an older boy. He's sort of the town outcast. He's mixed race in a time and place, rural Australia in the 1960s, when being mixed race was itself enough to make you the town outcast. So when Jasper shows up at Charlie's window in the middle of the night and asks for help, Charlie's kind of shocked, but he climbs out the window anyway. Jasper leads him to the body of a 16-year-old girl and begs Charlie to help him hide her until they can figure out who killed her. Otherwise, Jasper knows he'll be blamed for this crime that he didn't commit. This is a fantastic book. It's an elegant combination of mystery and historical fiction and coming of age. It paints a vivid portrait of the small town where these boys live. It has great dialogue, and despite its heavy subject matter, it's got some really funny moments as well. If you like To Kill a Mockingbird or other coming-of-age stories where characters are just beginning to understand with and grapple with the injustice in the world, try Jasper Jones by Craig Sylvie. So my next pick for underappreciated YA is also set in Australia. This is Stolen by Lucy Christopher. Stolen is written in the form of one long letter from the main character, 16-year-old Gemma, to the man who kidnaps her and holds her hostage in the Australian outback. There are two things I love about this novel. First, the setting is so incredibly realized that it feels like a character in its own right. I read this book literally years ago, and I can still picture the red sands of the outback blowing across the yard of the little house where Ty is holding Gemma hostage. Second... Christopher, the author, really plays with your mind. If you've ever pondered Stockholm Syndrome, this is a book for you. As the story unravels, she manages to make Ty seem kind and almost sympathetic. That's a pretty impressive feat when you're reminded on basically every page that he's kidnapped the main character and is holding her hostage. It's an unnerving reading experience, and sometimes that's my favorite kind. So you might hear this later, but we're actually recording this during Banned Books Week. Could you tell us what that is, Emily? Sure. So every year at the end of September, the American Library Association celebrates Banned Books Week. You might be surprised to find out that books are still regularly banned and challenged in this country. It sort of feels like something out of a different time. Or out of a book, like 1984. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, But actually, in 2017, the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom tracked over 350 challenges to books. That means someone tried to have the book removed from the library or from the school where it was. So Banned Books Week is a chance for libraries to draw attention to the fact that this is ongoing and to remind people that the freedom to read and access ideas isn't something that we should take for granted. And what kind of books are they trying to ban? That's a great question, and it's an interesting answer. So I brought the list of 2017's most frequent, 10 most frequently banned and challenged books, and there are definitely some common themes in there. The number one title uh, was Jay Asher's 13 Reasons Why. This is an older book. It was published in 2007, but you might know that there was a Netflix series made out of it recently. And it was very popular. It was. And so it, it sort of came back into prominence because of that. So most of the challenges to this book are coming from school districts where parents are concerned because the book depicts suicide. So that sort of parental concern, difficult topics is definitely something that comes up. Many of the books in the top 10 are aimed at teen readers. In addition to 13 Reasons Why, we've got Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. We have The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which was a huge book last year, also going to be made into a movie. Um, We have Raina Telgemeier's beloved graphic novel, drama. Um, These are all books that we have in the teen section here at KCLS that show up on this top 10 banned list. And they have something else in common, don't they? They do. (laughs) Another common theme is uh, books about gender and sexuality, especially for kids. Drama has an LGBTQ characters that are often cited in challenges. And there are two books featuring young transgender characters also on the list. 
Um, those are George, which is a chapter book by Alex Gino, and I Am Jazz, which is a picture book by Jazz Jennings and Jessica Herthel. I think it's notable that both of these books are also by gender nonconforming authors. So these are really stories about the lived experiences uh, of trans kids. Also in this category, Sex is a Funny Word, A-plus title, uh, this is a sex ed book for kids, and the perennially banned and challenged Entango Makes Three. Do you remember Entango Makes Three? It's a picture book, right? It's based a picture on book. some loving penguins. Indeed. Uh, it's a picture book based on the true story of two male penguins at the Central Park Zoo who formed a bonded pair and raised a chick named Tango together. The presence of so many books for young readers on this list isn't an aberration, right? It's pretty common to see everything from picture books to teen novels making up the vast majority of the top 10. But they're not the only ones that get banned, right? No, that's true. Um, there are other titles. In 2017, we see The Kite Runner, um, and in past years, ch- stories by Chuck Palahniuk and others. Um, but it's sort of an interesting question, this books for young readers, right? You're a parent yourself. I am. I'm a parent myself. And there are definitely things in our library collection that I would discourage my young daughter from reading. But there's a difference for libraries. It's a personal choice for me as a parent to say, this is not something that's appropriate for my child at this point in her life. It's not a choice that I make for the whole community by asking the library to remove a book from the collection entirely. And for us in libraries, that's the core of intellectual freedom. Our patrons have the right to access all kinds of information from materials, our collections, by using our computers or whatever. And that's true in our programming, too. It is true in our programming. So earlier this year, we offered drag queen story times in some of our libraries, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a story time hosted by a drag queen. As with all of our programs, parents have the option to take their kids or not. And full disclosure, my toddler and I went to drag queen story time and we had a great time. Um, But parents also have the option to skip these programs. We know that not all of our programs or all of our materials are for everybody, and that's okay. We do our best to reflect our incredibly diverse community in as many ways as we can. So one of the other common themes on the frequently banned and challenged list is comics and graphic novels. Yeah, and there's a whole organization called the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund whose job it is to defend these titles. Um, So they cite a lot of the reasons why comics are frequently banned. It's a visual medium. There's just something different about opening up a book and seeing something on a page and finding it objectionable as opposed to if it's text there. I think there's also something about comics and graphic novels where people have this instinct that it's for kids, even when it's not. I'm thinking of Matt Fraction's Sex Criminals, which is definitely not a book for children. But something about that comics format makes it feel a little more juvenile to some people. Yeah, there's this idea that comics are just for kids or that they're only telling superhero stories and that if a kid sees a book that's in a comics format, they're going to think that one's for me, even if it contains content that is ideally suited for adults. And there's this like long history of banning comics that dates back to the 1950s. So previously, there was this thing called the Comics Code Authority, which was the censor of comics. You had to obtain the seal of approval to get distribution in the country. And to do that, you had to abide by this really strict moral code. Huh. The same way film at the time had a moral code. And so a lot of publishers... Uh, were hit pretty hard by these restrictions. If you know Mad Magazine, uh, that is a publication that only continued because it switched the magazine format to get around the rules. Interesting. Yeah, and then in the 60s and 70s, to kind of 
circumvent the regulation, a lot of alternative comics were sold in head shops. Fascinating. And it's weird to think of these books like being among the bombs. (laughs) (laughs) But the scene was particularly vibrant in San Francisco. And we have artists like R. Crumb and Aileen Kaminsky coming out of that time and tackling subjects that were pretty taboo from sex and drugs to political satire. Something must have changed because I've heard those names. Yeah, absolutely. So in the 80s and 90s, I feel like there's this huge paradigm shift in comics and graphic novels, probably starting with Mouse. Have you read that one? I haven't, but I know of it. Yeah, and most people know of it, even if they don't know about other comics and graphic novels. Um, It's a Pulitzer Prize winner. It's a beautiful story of um, the the author interviewed his father, who's a Polish Jew and a Holocaust survivor, and translated that story into um, a book where Jews were depicted as mice, Nazis were depicted as cats, And it's something that's used in classrooms today, but it tackled this really difficult, heavy subject in a beautiful, relatable way. I think once that got published, people really started to see, oh, comics can be a lot of things, (laughs) including art, including something very serious. So that book was huge in shifting public opinion, but they're still frequently banned (laughs) um, for reasons like having coarse language, sex, queer-identified characters, and I've got some suggestions that have all of the above. Fantastic! A few books that I love that are both comics and banned books include This One Summer. It was one of the most banned books in recent years. And the reason why people don't like it is because it looks at early adolescence through a lens that I think is quite honest and complicated and involves some curse words and some some mentions of difficult family topics. And for all those reasons, adults don't necessarily want kids reading about that, but I think it's a very warm, beautiful story. It follows Rose, who's kind of on the cusp of adolescence. She's about 11. Every summer, her family goes to the same beach, has a beach house, has this friend that she only sees there. Um, And they're both just like running around having a lot of fun, getting sugar high on candy and swimming all day and taking long bike rides and also trying to impress all the cool older kids in town by like renting scary movies and cursing awkwardly. (laughs) Um, But unlike summers in the past, there's some some like heavier stuff that's happening both in Rose's family with those teenagers there are these small town secrets that they uncover and so this summer is a little bit more intense than maybe once had been in the past I would have loved this book when I was Rose's age I love this book now I think it can be read by many readers and the choice about whether or not it's appropriate is something that each reader gets to make for themselves. But I wholeheartedly suggest this one summer. I think it's a beautiful story and absolutely worth reading. Another frequently banned comic is Sex Criminals, which you can guess from the name, has some sexual content in it. It is not necessarily safe for work. One of the main characters is a librarian who um, is trying to save this library from closing. And the way that she does that is very unlikely. She's been going through her entire life with this secret special power. And it's not until she meets someone else who shares it that she really um, begins to use it for all it can do. (laughs) 
I can't say too much more without giving away the plot, but I highly suggest Sex Criminals, which um, again is one of those books that I think I would have loved when I was a teenager. It handles sex in this very frank, honest, wonderful way. It's playful and nuanced and surprisingly relatable for anyone who's ever felt a little bit weird. So would highly suggest both This One Summer and Sex Criminals. If you're a fan of comics and graphic novels, there's a new way to read your favorites. There's this cool streaming service from the library called Hoopla. So you can use it to watch movies, listen to music. But my favorite thing to do with Hoopla is to read comics. Yeah, and the selection is really great. It has a lot of the stuff that we've talked about already today. It's got saga. It's got sex criminals. It has superhero comics. It's also got smaller indie stuff. Yeah, one of my favorites are all the books that come out from Fanagraphics. So... Spoiler alert, I used to work there, so I'm a little bit biased, but um, I think they've got some amazing titles like How to Be Happy by Eleanor Davis and Mega Hex from Simon Hanselman. So if you're a comics book reader and you haven't checked out Hoopla, be sure and go on kcls.org and search for Hoopla and check it out today. Go to kcls.org backslash Hoopla. That's H-O-O-P-L-A. Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.